today we have the title of Can We Trust the Bible in the Age of Fake News? And um, I'm... Uh, and uh, if we go back to uh, 2016, then um, the tail end of the US presidential election and uh, this whole thing of fake news kind of kicked off. Uh, BuzzFeed, I think it was, uh, was uh, discovered um, and young people in Macedonia were putting out all these stories um, from uh, across Facebook um, and uh, all sorts of things. Uh, Pope Francis, right, Pope Francis shocks the world, endorses Donald Trump as a, uh, as a prime, as a, not prime minister, what is he, um, yeah, whatever he is. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but the teenagers were not really interested in politics. They were primarily interested in uh, the next slide, which was uh, making money out of Facebook. It just happened that uh, um, it was, um, you know, the, the American elections were the stories that were going viral uh, at the time. And so then after the election, hundreds of news stories start to come out from legitimate outlets uh, using this phrase, fake news. Um, and it meant uh, all sorts of things from uh, disinformation, misinformation, phony stories, pranks, conspiracy theories, political spin, uh, and all the rest of it. And everything kind of got lumped into uh, this category of, of fake news. And then you fast forward to um, uh, the, um, 2017, and Donald Trump basically then used to just say, any news that he didn't like, any agency that he didn't agree with, then you are fake news. And, uh, and so the usefulness of the phrase is, is a little bit limited uh, today, because there are things that we need to distinguish between facts, between opinions, between speculations, and between uh, absolute um, and outright fiction. And uh, Pope Francis, interestingly, in his, uh, one of his responses to uh, some of this and the fake news headlines, uh, he's spoken out about it even this year, and just saying that fake news is not good for humanity. It deceives, it misleads, and it is never harmless. Even a slight distortion of the truth can have very dangerous uh, effects. And so he also points out that actually the first fake news came in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden uh, when this character, the serpent, introduces uh, a fake um, comment, if you like, uh, when he comes along to uh, the first uh, of people and says, did God really say? Did God really say? Trying to get people to doubt what is God's word? And today's question about trusting the Bible really comes out of the heart of that. Does God really say? Is this really the word of God um, that we have? And uh, the reality is that actually most fake news um, gets found out. Yeah? We kind of realize it might be at the time, but give it a few months, give it a few years, people tend to work out what is fake uh, and what isn't. And in fact, in the early days of Twitter, people would call it a self-cleaning oven in the sense that uh, because there were falsehoods definitely there, but the community itself would debunk the stuff that was myths and the stuff that was false. And in many ways, that's kind of how uh, things happened in the first century AD, that uh, there was, everybody was around, any falsehood that was around kind of got debunked uh, within it. Uh, to that, because as uh, Thomas Cooper says, fraud and falsehood dread examination, but truth invites it. And with Christian faith, with the Christianity um, as something that claims to be true, we invite examination, we invite the interrogation of it, believing that just as in a court of law, if you cross-examine it, it will stand uh, to that. And if it is truth, then it absolutely has to be the way that we work with it. So can we trust the Bible? Can we evaluate its sources? So due to time, um, I plan to focus uh, on what we call the New Testament. 
um, which is if you were to take uh, the Bible and split it up into its constituent books, the bottom two shelves there, uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in yellow, uh, Paul's letters in green on the, the third shelf, the other letters and John's revelation uh, kind of in there as well. Um, and because these focus on Jesus, these focus on his life, his teaching, his work, his resurrection, and his first followers. However, the Old Testament, which is the first two shells there, is also crucial in understanding the reliability of the New Testament because within it, um, there are all these prophecies, there are all these predictions and claims about the Messiah um, that are literally validated in Jesus. Um, and because of this big picture of what would come, it is actually quite important in that. And it begins, God's rescue plan through the whole thing begins in the very book of Genesis in 3.15, where he promises um, what will happen and just begins to predict uh, things beyond. And so the 39 Old Testament books have all of that um, in it, predicting the Messiah would come, he would live, he would die, he'd be resurrected, um, and etc., etc. Um, but I want to give you just one example um, of the Old Testament, because um, it is important. And uh, this is a Jewish scribe. They were um, incredible people, um, meticulous with the scriptures and copying them down the years. Um, they would literally have very, very strict rules. You know, every book of the Bible would be columns. You can see the columns there. There'd be the same number of letters in every column. They'd count the number of letters in a book and find out which was the middle letter and the middle word. And they were just very, very particular in how they copied things down. And um, uh, until 1947, the earliest copy um, that we had was from uh, about 900 AD, um, kind of looking like that on the, in the picture there. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, they discovered um, this amazing uh, Isaiah's, the great Isaiah scroll, on, amongst other things. A complete copy of Isaiah that is dated to uh, between 1 and 200 BC, so way before Jesus ever came. Um, this one says 125 BC, a thousand years before the other one. And so you can start to look at um, the, the kind of similarities between two copies a thousand years apart. So this is, this is part of it. And um, if you compare the great Isaiah scroll with um, uh, the other one from uh, the Aleppo Codex, as it's known as, 95% is identical. Okay, that is phenomenal amount of accuracy. And uh, within it, all the changes, any changes within that, the small, the 5% that is in there are all very minor, uh, usually a single letter, sometimes the odd word. On occasion, there's a variation um, of a verse. But if you take a key passage like Isaiah 53, which is famous about the Messiah being pierced for our sins and all the rest of that, the differences over a thousand years are just a matter of spelling, which do not affect the sense of the, the meaning at all. Minor stylistic changes such as conjunctions and the Hebrew word for light, which is added in verse 11, which doesn't affect the meaning greatly. This word is also supported by other key texts. So despite some alternative spellings, scribal, of the odd scribal error and corrections, they conclude that no alterations to the text's meanings nor to the messianic beliefs are demonstrated. That they're absolutely phenomenal in taking the message through thousands and thousands of years uh, of transmission. And so we have this, we have the predictions there that say this is more than just man's word, but actually there is a God who is behind this because so many people are predicted, places, events that come to pass um, as a result of it. But I want to move on to the New Testament. And um, 
It's helpful to unpack the questions that I think we need to look at to really get to grips with this um, because of the way that they communicated um, in that part of, of, of history. So I've put a little date thing there. Obviously, we start with Jesus here and how he taught um, and how he passed that on to the apostles, how he passed that, how that is communicated uh, to them, um, how they then go on and write their original documents um, and begin to write it down. And there are questions, obviously, we might have of reliability with that. Uh, Paul, who's converted on the road to Damascus and plants churches throughout Europe, um, his letters and the reliability of that. Um, and then the cross to the next generation, what are known as the church fathers. These are the disciples of the disciples. These are the students who studied under the apostles, um, uh, Paul, John, uh, and all the rest of them. Um, then we have the, the, the papyrus fragments, um, that you can, you can find in museums around the world, and then entire New Testaments uh, from which our English translations kind of come. And so I think there are primarily kind of these, these areas, these kind of transitions from Jesus to the apostles, apostles to the documents, the apostles to the church fathers and their writings that back things up, the early uh, fragments and uh, letters um, that we have in museums and entire New Testaments. That's kind of what I want to do. But the big question being, is the text reliable? So can we rely on what the text is? And is the message of the text reliable? So is it what they, they might have said it or they might have written it, but is, is it accurate of what they actually were trying to communicate? So the first thing to understand is just this incredibly strong teaching tradition of Jesus. Okay, Jesus, in the way, everything that he did, he was this teacher, this strong rabbi, this rabbinical teaching method that he had. He didn't write anything down, okay, but the early church continued and modeled this model of teaching and how important um, it was. Um, it was, uh, you know, Paul continues it, the apostles continue it, um, of this Jesus tradition, okay. The way that he taught was very memorable, okay. He spoke with, with pictures, he spoke in ways that drew crowds, um, and it was very powerful. He changed people's lives. He set people free. He healed people. It was a very memorable thing that he was doing uh, through, it, through, um, through all that he spoke about. He was a very memorable speaker and preacher. And not only that, but the, the disciples, and certainly disciples, considered him to be the Messiah. And this Messiah figure was expected all the way through Jewish history and he would come, and everyone believed that the Messiah would come and speak with God's truth and with God's wisdom. And so his followers, those that believed him to be the Messiah, would follow with very close attention because this is God himself bringing truth and wisdom to it. So his words were memorable, but also they would have been remembered because that is the context that they were in. And so the apostles see this, and uh, they continue this, you know, they continue this oral tradition. Um, they remember his words and they start to teach it and preach it to the first followers uh, of Jesus and to the early church, the early evangelists and, and everyone around. These are the apostles that were chosen by Jesus and they were sent out by Jesus to be his representatives, to proclaim the presence of the kingdom. And uh, they function, there's a, there's a concept in uh, Jewish rabbinical um, culture, this uh, shaliach, I think is how you pronounce it. And what it means is the one who is sent is like the one himself. Okay, so like an ambassador. It actually goes on their behalf. And we read about it in Luke 10, 13. It says, he who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you 
rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So just as Jesus comes and is a complete representation, exact representation of God himself, so they go out as his ambassadors to that. So Christianity is not in the least troubled by the fact that Jesus has not written anything down. The tradition is of passing this on. They are incredibly well trained. You read about it in Matthew 10, where he sends them out, and they do exactly like he did, um, and very, very similar style in how they taught, in what they said. They didn't take any support with them. They were to expect rejection, etc., etc. And then in the book of Acts, we see a people who are devoted to the apostles' teaching. There is this culture of passing it on and of devotion uh, through it all. They are totally tied to Jesus' authority. They are not representing themselves in any way. They are all there and all out to represent Jesus. And uh, they are witnesses. They are first-hand witnesses um, of all that has happened, um, all that has happened to Jesus. Acts chapter 2, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. 1 John, uh, and the first chapter there says, John says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, Jesus. So Jesus' promise is also that, that the Spirit of God will remind them as they go as well of everything he's taught. So before um, an apostle ever put anything to paper, before there was anything ever written down, the, the, the authority of Scripture, if you like, already existed within the apostles' teaching. Okay? It, how they taught and how they preached, it was already there. already had that canonical authority uh, to it. And so Paul writes things like, you know, I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. And uh, in Timothy, guard the good deposit or the sacred deposit that was entrusted to you. It's this teaching, it's this uh, deposit of, of, uh, of truth that is to be guarded and to be passed on. And uh, not only that, but they would keep one another accountable to it. Okay, they would keep themselves. So in Galatians chapter 2, we read about Paul who has to challenge Peter. And he says, Peter, you've got it completely wrong uh, in verse 11. He says, you know, you, you were eating with the Gentiles and now you're withdrawing because suddenly you think you've got to become Jewish and stay Jewish. And so Paul challenges Peter's uh, a kind of understanding of the gospel at that point. And then they take it to the leaders in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 and they come up with and check it out with one another. In Acts chapter 18, we find a character called Apollos who's going around preaching, a Jewish guy. He comes to Ephesus, a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, presumably the Old Testament. And he's been instructed in the way of the Lord and Jesus. And he speaks with great fervor and he teaches about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. There was this continual cross-checking that they were absolutely on the nail with the message. And it's out of that that they then come to the point of writing it down. Okay, writing down what their teaching is as apostles. And that emerges um, as the Christian message has spread so far and wide that geography now becomes a problem. They can't literally get to everywhere. And so what they want to do is they want to put down letters that kind of almost replace their apostolic authority for turning up at a church and saying this carries the same 
uh, level of authority that we are preaching in the churches because we can't get to everywhere. And also, it's a way of um, guiding a church through some of the false teaching that, uh, that they may be experiencing from others. And also to bring it to a whole variety of churches um, that have been planted. So they are regarded as of equal authority to, as the apostle themselves turning up uh, with a message. So they usually start with an introduction. So Romans, for example, you read the beginning of that, and it just says, you know, Paul, an apostle, sent by God, sent by Jesus, to come to that. At the end uh, of Colossians, it says, this is I, Paul, write this in my own hand. You know, you can recognize my writing here. Um, the content is, uh, or oh, public reading. You know, this is to be encouraged for public reading. It's not just a letter to um, for one, but it's written for the whole of the church. This is their teaching um, in there. Um, the content there, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. It has that authority. And uh, it's also there to challenge the fakes. There was fake news even there. There were people coming with fake news stories to the Thessalonians. And Paul challenges it. And he says, that is, that, this is not what you need to know. This is the wrong stuff you're hearing. This is the right stuff. This is the teaching of the apostles. And also through time, not only geography, but it's a way of through the generations passing on this teaching, this good, good deposit, this sacred deposit um, that they have. Luke chapter 1 is, is amazing. Um, I mean, this is what R Luke writes. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The eyewitnesses and the servants of the Lord are primarily the twelve, um, and they are the primary link between Jesus and the early church. But it's not just them. There are also uh, the women um, who follow them too. Um, so even when the apostles temporarily desert Jesus after he's arrested, um, the women are at the cross, as is John. He's at the cross. Mary, Jesus' mother, is there. They know where the tomb is located. They find it empty. And Luke goes on in, in the beginning of Acts to say there's another 120 believers who um, witnessed all of this. Paul records 500 who saw the resurrected Jesus at one time. So there's a great evidence of eyewitness accounts that is involved in all of this. And so Luke says his sources are eyewitnesses and they are servants of the word, effectively the apostles themselves. Hey, they are people who are personally involved in the events described. And his aim is to produce a reliable and orderly account. What he doesn't say, interestingly, he doesn't say, I've just had this divinely given to me. He says, I've gone through all the normal human research stuff to find this out. And I've done it as thoroughly as possible um, to do that. From the earliest years of Jesus' life, from the beginning. He doesn't claim that he's got the, the chronology completely bang on. He just says, this is what happened. Um, he doesn't claim to have an exact transcription of the words of Jesus, who spoke in Aramaic, and the Gospels are written in Greek, but he claims that he's carefully investigated everything, that it is reliable, eyewitness, apostolic um, source, and a good account of all of that. And interestingly, the scholars uh, apparently distinguish between 
the, wor- the actual words of Jesus and what they call the voice of Jesus. The words of Jesus, we don't necessarily know precisely. But the voice of Jesus, the meaning, um, the scholars reckon we do know. And the New Testament claims we do know. That the scripture is God-breathed, that it is authoritative. Um, and it's, it's worth noting, though, that actually the words of Jesus, when you look across the accounts of the Gospels, are, are so much more similar um, than actually the, the actions um, that happened. But in fact, the only written material that was around at the time of Jesus is the title above the cross. And it's just a good example to see variation within a general framework of four reliable reports. So in Matthew, he says this, that the thing that is above Jesus, the sign, he says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Mark, it puts, the King of the Jews. Luke puts, this is the King of the Jews. And John puts, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And John records that it's actually written in three different languages, in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Right? But as you look at those, you go, they are totally reliable without having exact verbal accuracy. Yeah? They are so similar in the message and what they're trying to put across. And time and time again, Luke's um, you know, archaeology backs up Luke uh, in amazing ways. We haven't got time to go into that just now. So here's our framework, just going back to Jesus, the apostles and Paul, the church fathers, and, and their writings, and uh, dates down the side. And I just want to say something, first of all, about the epistles, the letters. Because these were probably written first, um, and they can be dated very reliably um, because of Paul's death uh, in the mid-60s AD uh, under Nero. Uh, so Paul writes, you know, 1 Corinthians, Romans, Philippians, uh, and many others. And these are written um, in the 50s. So in the 50s AD, first century um, AD, uh, and Jesus has ministered and died in the 30s. Okay, so this is like something happening in the 1990s for us and writing it down now. Okay, there's plenty of people around to verify what happened in the 90s. Okay, you can talk to people, you can check with people. It's not that long back. Um, I think most of us think, wow, that is, that is pretty soon since when that, is, that has actually happened. And in these letters uh, of Paul, we see early Christianity defining itself as a movement that started, was started by Jesus of Nazareth and is now based on faith in him. You know, 1 Corinthians says, you know, we, he died for our sins, as is predicted in the scriptures. He was raised from the dead. Um, it is all very clearly in there. And um, while Paul usually issues, focuses on the bigger issues of salvation, he also, in passing, mentions a number of things about Jesus' life. So in 1 Corinthians 11, he mentions the Lord's Supper. And he talks about on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And Paul is just reminding his readers what they already know. Okay? It's, it, this, the tradition is there. The narrative is there. This, is, this story of what happened to Jesus is being passed on time and time again. And one bit of it, on the night that he was betrayed which is part of that story, he talks about the Lord's Supper. So Paul is putting it down very, very clearly, what he's already been taught across all of the churches. He even knows what Jesus said and what he says. He says, this is from the Lord, not from me. And then he says, this is from me, not from the Lord. He's very clear on what he understands, what Jesus said and what Jesus didn't say. 
Um, Paul has this remarkable encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it's Jesus himself, the risen Jesus, that sends him out as an apostle, as a, as a witness um, to declare the gospel. And in Galatians 1.18, after three years, it says, Paul went to visit Peter um, in Jerusalem for two weeks um, to check out that, he's on, that what he's saying is the right stuff. Um, he goes to Arabia, and then Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, after 14 years, he presents to the apostles in Jerusalem the gospel that he's preaching, because he doesn't want to be preaching in vain. He wants them to check that what he is preaching is the same thing that they are preaching, this mutual accountability to it all. And so we have Jesus' teaching style to the apostles. It's very reliable. It's very memorable. We have the apostles and Paul to the churches, which is very reliable. And we have the first written letters backing up Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and the gospel message uh, in the 50s there. Um, Mark's gospel is written around about 70 AD in the 60s. Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel in the 80s, um, uh, they are partly sourced on Mark, they are partly sourced themselves, and they are partly sourced on what is considered to be something called the Q sayings, which were sayings of Jesus that were written in the 40s. Um, so that's what they reckon because of where they get things from. And then John's gospel and uh, his letters and the book of Revelation uh, written in the 90s. Okay, so that's, that's all there. Then you've got the church fathers. Now these are incredible crowds. So there's Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp. Okay, you might have heard them somewhere along the line, I don't know. But these were disciples of the apostles. So these are people that were discipled by people like John and people like Paul. Um, they were their students, if you like. So Clement, in 95 AD, writes um, what is known as the first epistle of Clement. It's actually to the church in Corinth. It's massive. It's about twice the length of Hebrews. And uh, within it, he references the Old Testament, but he also references the Gospels, the words of Jesus, and he tells them to take up the epistle of the blessed Paul the Apostle. So he alludes to many of Paul's letters okay, that is in there. Um, I could list them, but I won't. He is probably the Clement that Paul refers to in Philippians 4 verse 3, where he says his name is written in the book of life. This is the guy that Paul knew well, and he is writing, and he writes copiously. There's um, Ignatius, who is a student of John. Ignatius was to become the bishop of Antioch, and uh, he quotes... Um, the scriptures. He refers to passages in Ephesians and to Philippians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, uh, all sorts of things. And then there's Polycarp, who was a personal friend of John, okay, 120 AD, and he frequently quotes from all sorts of books in the New Testament. And so nearly every book apart from 2 John and Jude is cited or referred to or quoted by these three guys uh, in the very early part of that second century. And then there's another guy, Arrhenius, in 170 AD, who um, was a great defender of the faith, and he's cited all the books by this point have been cited, um, including all of those as well. Because the primary attack in his day was not on the text, okay? It was on understanding what the message was. So nobody argued with what was written. What they argued with was uh, what it meant. 
And so it was the heresies, it was the false teaching, it was Gnosticism. These were the great threats to the Christian faith. And so these church fathers would refute it and write against it in a powerful way, just like Paul had done before. But the core of the New Testament is now completely written down and considered uh, as the core of the apostles' teaching by that point. And so lastly, just the early uh, papyrus, uh, the papyrus uh, books, fragments, and all the rest of it that you can find in museums and collections around the world. I'm just going to zoom in for this one and just give you what some of the key ones. So one called Ryland's fragment, P52, is a fragment of John's gospel that dates around about 120, 130 AD. Okay, it has John 18, um, uh, 31 to 33, and 37 to 38. Okay, this is not long after John wrote it. Maybe about 35 years after John originally wrote um, his gospel, we've got this in a museum. Um, John's students are still around to check it. His friends, his disciples. Um, Another one, P66, it's known as, is a near-complete John's Gospel, dated uh, around 150 to 200 AD. You can get that in the Bodmer Library in Geneva. P46 is really interesting. This is, I, found, I didn't even know about this, the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin. You might want to visit it sometime. You can see it online as well. And this is a manuscript that has got nearly all of Paul's letters collected together in one document. Um, P45 is another one, which I think you, sounds like something you get at work, doesn't it, P45? That's got the Gospels, so that's, that's got f- the f- parts of the four Gospels together. Um, P75 has got Luke's Gospel and John's Gospel together. Because most of these things circulated as separate things, but they're now beginning to be put together into, into one document. Um, and there's other ones, which, you know, Matthew's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, um, etc., and then when Constantine comes along, and Constantine, the Roman em- emperor, is converted to Christianity, the church gets more influential, the church gets much more wealthier, and you get complete Greek Bibles, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, two of the more famous ones, the Codex Vatica- Vaticanus, around about 300 AD, in the Vatican Library, and the Codex Sinaiticus, about 325 to 350 AD, which is in the British Library in London. And everything is kind of pulled together. So just uh, in summary, you've got the original documents, you've got the hand copies in museums around the world, and then the critical texts and printed copies that we have uh, today um, that are then translated uh, into whatever. And the, 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 the rule of thumb is the more copies you have, then the greater the accuracy to the original. And secondly, the earlier the copy is, or the closer to the original the copy is, the greater the accuracy. So you go to the earlier copies for greater accuracy. And uh, when you look at the ancient texts, and you may have seen this before, take something like Livy, for example, the history of Rome, you know, and they take this as great historical documentation. Right? They've actually got 19 copies from the 10th century, and they've got one partial copy from the 4th century, or something that was written around about the same time as the New Testament, or the, you know, Jesus was around. Okay, 400 years, 1,000 years after, and that kind of copy. And they take that as brilliant historical evidence. You look at the New Testament, 
Okay, and they've got you know, fragments less than 50 years after the original, whole books around about 100 years after it, most of the New Testament together about 150 years afterwards, and complete New Testaments 225 years afterwards. Not one copy, not 19 copies, 5,000 plus copies in Greek, 10,000 copies in Latin, over 9,000 in other languages, Syriac and all sorts, and you've got 36,000 references from the church fathers who were always writing stuff and quoting from the very letters uh, themselves. It's absolutely stunning um, what is out there. And so that just, I think, just gives us hopefully some confidence that there's, uh, there are so many lines in that mean that we can, we can trust. Yes, there are questions, okay? There are bits of the Bible where there are footnotes, there are alternatives, and we have to look at it. And we have to understand it in our language today and in our context today. But there is something very powerful to at least read this and, uh, and begin to get to grips with how it speaks into our lives. Because these guys gave their lives for it. These guys would do everything to protect it and make sure that we have something today. Let's pray together and, uh, as we come to a close. Father, we want to thank you that you don't leave us without evidence. Um, you don't leave us without clues. Um, and uh, you give us uh, a tremendous sense of, uh, of history uh, and continuity um, with these um, books and letters, Father. And we pray that you would give us a, a renewed uh, fervor to uh, engage with them, to read them and apply them uh, into our lives so that we are equipped, Lord, with the, the fake news of our world, uh, with truth that actually changes ourselves and our communities. Amen.